Salvete omnes, welcome to the AP Latin Podcast. The goal of this podcast will be to cover the lines from Caesar's De Bello Gallico and Virgil's Aeneid that are found on the AP Latin curriculum. Each two-part episode will cover a selection of lines from Caesar and Virgil. I will present the Latin and English of the text, providing relevant clarification, background, and cultural information that will help put the readings in their proper context. I encourage you to read along with me as you listen to the Latin and to use the English as a way to check your understanding rather than relying on the English for understanding. Each episode will conclude with some essential questions to consider as you process through the meaning of the text. Parati, Aeamos. AP Latin Podcast, Episode 21b, Aeneid Book 6, Lines 295 to 332. In this episode, Aeneas will see so many things, and you will learn that being dead isn't a particularly great thing to be in the ancient world. Hinc via tartarei quae fert acarontis adundas, turbidus hic caino vastaque waragine gurges aistuat, at quam nem cocite ructatarenam, portitor has horrendus aquas et flumina servat terribiles qualore caron, cui plurimamento canities in culta jacet stant lumina flama, sordidus ex umeris nodo de pendetamictus. Ipse ratem conto subigit velisque ministrat, et feruginea subvectat corpora cumba. Yam senior, sed cruda deo veridisque senectus, huc omnis turbat ripas efusa ruebat, matres atque viri defuncta que corpora vita, magnani me roum, pueri, inuptaeque puellae, impositique rogis uenes antora parentum, Quam molten silvis autumni frigora primo, lapsa cadunt foli aut ad terram gurgitab alto, quam multi glomerantur aves, ubi frigidus anus trans pontum fugat, et teris imitit apricis. Stabant orantes primi transmittere cursum, tende bantque manus ripol teriores amore. Navitas sed tristis, nunc hos nunc acapit illos. Ast alios longe submotos arcetarena. Aeneas miratus enem motusque tumultu, dic ait, o virgo, quid vult concursus ad amnem, quidve petunt animae. Well, quo discrimine ripas hylinquunt, illae remis vada liwidaverunt. Ali sic breviter fatest, longaiva sacerdos, an quisa generate deum certissima proles. Cocitis stagnalta vide stigiamque paludem, di cuius iorare timent et falara numen. Haec omnis quam cernis inapsinumataque turbest. Portitur ille caron, qui quos vehet unda sepulti, nec ripastatur horrendas et rauca fluenta transportare prius quam sedibus osa quierunt. Centerant anos, volitant quaec litora circum, Tum dem admissi stagnex optata revisunt. Constitit ancisa satus et vestigia presit, multa putans sortem quanimo miseratus iniquam. From here is the way which carries them to the waves of Tartarian Acheron. Here a whirlpool, turbid with mud and with a vast abyss, boils and belches up all the sand to the cocytus. The ferryman Charon, horrendous with terrible filth, watches over these waters and rivers, for whom very much unkempt gray hair lies on his chin. His eyes stand with flame. A filthy cloak hangs from his shoulders with a knot. 
He himself compels a boat with a pole and attends to the sails, and conveys bodies in the rust-colored skiff. Now an old man, but old age to a god is fresh and vigorous. To this place rushed the whole crowd, having been poured out to the banks. Mothers and men and bodies of great-souled heroes finished with life, boys and unwed girls and youths placed on funeral pyres before the faces of their parents. As many as the leaves that, having slipped, fall in the woods at the first cold of autumn, or as many as the birds that flock together at the shore from the deep whirlpool, when the frigid time of year puts them to flight across the sea and sends them to sunny lands. They stood praying to cross the course first, and were holding out their hands with love for the further shore. But the gloomy sailor receives now these, now those, but others he keeps off, removed far from the sand. Indeed, Aeneas, marveling and moved by the tumult, says, Tell me, O maiden, what does this gathering near the river want, or what do the souls seek? Or with what distinction do these leave the shores behind, but those sweep over the dark shallows with oars? To him the aged priestess briefly spoke thus, You, sprung from Anchises, most certain offspring of the gods, see the deep pools of Cocytus and the Stygian swamps, the divine power of which the gods fear to swear an oath by and to deceive. This whole crowd which you see is the poor and unburied. That one is the ferryman Charon. These, whom the wave carries, are the buried." Nor is it granted to transport them across the horrible shores and harsh streams before their bones have rested in their seats. They wander one hundred years and flit around these shores. Then finally admitted, they see again the longed-for pools. He, sired from Anchises, stood still and pressed his footprints, thinking many things and having pitied their unfair lot in his mind. In Book 6, Aeneas finally makes it to Italy. The first place they land is a place called Cume. Aeneas had aimed for Cume because he had wanted to talk with the Sibyl, the priestess of Apollo who delivered oracles and prophecies to those seeking to know their future fates. Delphi and Cume were two big oracles to Apollo in the ancient world, and there was also an oracle of Jupiter Ammon in North Africa. After landing, Aeneas climbs up to the temple, where he notices the artwork on the doors, supposedly carved by Daedalus after landing from his famous flight and he is staring at the doors, taking in the images of Pasiphae and the Minotaur and Theseus and Daedalus himself, when the Sibyl comes up to him and tells him that those spectacles are not for him, that he has other things to do, and this sets the tone for Book 6. Book 6 is a book of spectacles, meaning that there are a ton of things that Aeneas is a spectator for, that he watches happen around him, but he himself is not a very active character. He is taken from place to place, and he has shown things that Virgil will describe with ekphrasis levels of detail, but Aeneas doesn't actually do a whole lot himself. For example, the Sibyl gives Aeneas his oracle, that he is going to have to fight a second Trojan war in Italy, and in response Aeneas asks to go to the underworld to talk to the shade of his father. The Sibyl tells him that before he can go visit the underworld he has to do two things. First, he has to get the golden branch as an offering to Proserpina for entry to the underworld and second, he has to bury one of his companions, who had just died while Aeneas was off staring at doors. But he doesn't actually have to do any searching for either of the things he's supposed to search for, because first, as Aeneas walks back to camp talking with his right-hand man Akates and wondering who had died, they see the dead body of their friend Messenus conveniently lying on the shore right in front of them. And then, while building the funeral pyre for their friend, Aeneas is wondering how on earth he will ever be able to find the golden branch when Venus conveniently sends two doves to lead him to the exact location of the branch conveniently. 
From there, as the Sybil is leading Aeneas to the entrance of the underworld, he stands in horror at personified forces of grief and cares, sickness and old age, fear and famine, poverty, death and toil, and sleep and war and discord. And alongside them he sees all kinds of monsters, centaurs, the hydra, the chimera, gorgons and harpies. But they don't really do anything, and neither does he. He just watches them, and then they move on. All leading to this section, where Aeneas watches the spectacle on the shore as Charon pulls up his ferry boat. And Virgil goes into great detail about Charon's appearance and about all the types of people that are waiting to board the ferry. From the priestess, Aeneas also learns some of the rules of the underworld. Unburied souls have to wander the shore for 100 years before they can get transported across. And even the souls of the buried have to wait to get picked to go across. Some things of note to help you better understand the context for this passage. Charon is the name of the ferryman who transports the souls of the dead across one of the five rivers that flowed in, around, and through the underworld. The specific rivers mentioned in this passage are the Acheron and Cocytus, with Stygian being used as an adjective but referring to the river Styx, the most well-known of the underworld rivers and the one usually connected with Charon. But in this section, Virgil says that the Acheron is the river that the ferry crosses, and Virgil treats Cocytus and Styx as though they are the same, and more like a swamp than an actual river. That Charon is depicted as filthy, unkempt, and wearing tattered clothing is fitting because these were traditional signs of mourning the dead. He is a deity, so although he looks old, he is immortal. There is some archaism in this section. Ali, an archaic form of Ili, is paired with the mention of the priestess as being Longaiwa. According to Ovid in his Metamorphoses, the Sibyl had been granted a wish by Apollo, she pointed to a pile of sand and wished for as many years as there were grains of sand in the pile, but she forgot to ask for perpetual youth. And at the time of speaking to Aeneas, she was 700 years old. The other archaic form is Nawita, an archaic form of Nauta, used in reference to Charon, earlier described as Senior, and looking like an old man. The use of these older Latin forms lends a sense of antiquity to the scene, as though both the priestess and Charon have been around so long that they speak archaic language. Finally, there are three lines that describe the dead people that Aeneas sees. Mothers and men and bodies of great-souled heroes finished with life, boys and unwed girls and youths placed on funeral pyres before the faces of their parents. These exact three lines have been lifted word for word from Book 4 of Virgil's earlier work, The Georgics, when he describes Orpheus's descent into the underworld. We saw some borrowing in the simile of the bees earlier, but these lines are taken verbatim. So either Virgil really liked those lines in the Georgics and decided to recycle them, or he is intentionally pointing to that earlier story. And in doing so, he is connecting Aeneas with Orpheus, another hero who visited the underworld and came back. And in amongst all the heroes and women and youths who died before their parents, there is the phrase, boys and unwed girls. This exact phrase is also used in Book 2, when the Trojans were bringing the horse into the city. Boys and unwed girls sing sacred songs around it and rejoice to touch the rope by hand. These two instances are the only times in the entire Aeneid when Virgil uses the word puella. It could be a coincidence, but the repetition of the exact same phrase, and Virgil's use of a certain word only inside of that phrase, seems to indicate that he is intentionally trying to call to mind the Trojan children who were celebrating the horse, who most likely died in the sack of Troy, and who might be these same children that Aeneas sees on the shores of the river Acheron. From there, Virgil uses two similes to draw comparisons to the gathering of souls at the riverbank, leaves falling in autumn, and a flock of migrating birds. The imagery here aptly describes the scene. As falling leaves are dead, 
and as anyone who has tried to rake their yard in autumn knows, no matter how many dead leaves you carry off, there always seem to be more to take their place. And migrating birds are transitory. They're in the process of moving from one place to another, but they're taking a break on the shore before moving on to their final destination, just like the souls, or at least the buried ones, that are in the middle of their journey from one land to another. Aeneas stops and marvels at everything he sees, asking the Sibyl questions and feeling pity for the souls, and this is something that will happen more than once on his trip to the underworld. The Sibyl will hint a little bit later that they have only a limited amount of time in the land of the dead, and yet Aeneas seems determined to spend that time staring at all the things and talking to all the people who aren't his father. Aeneas has barely made it into the underworld, and already he has been assaulted by spectacle. Once he actually crosses the river, he will have even more sights to see. As we close out the episode, here are some essential questions to consider. How does Virgil let you know the emotions that Aeneas feels throughout this passage? How do his reactions contribute to your understanding of his character? What impression is Charon's physical appearance meant to make on the audience? How do Virgil's two comparisons, to leaves falling and to a flock of birds migrating, help enhance his description of the crowd of shades? How is the importance of funerary rites for the dead emphasized by what Aeneas sees? Why would Virgil intentionally draw the connection between Aeneas and Orpheus by recycling lines from his Georgics? Why would Virgil want to intentionally call your mind back to Book 2 through the phrase, Boys and Unwed Girls? How does Caesar deal with the topic of death and dying in his commentary? Is it similar to or different from Virgil's treatment? Gratias ago pro auscultando, valete. <laughs>